0: Good morning. morning. Welcome. I'm going to do a quick prayer because I need every second. I do like to teach, and so I get in trouble sometimes because I go too long. So I'm going to pray quickly and get started. (laughs) Lord, we echo just the prayers that have already been given this morning. Lord, we ask, God, that you do come, and, God, that you would take your word and that you would implant it individually, Lord, that you would water it and that you would cause it to grow this morning. Let it run swiftly, Lord. In the name of your son, I pray, amen. Okay, so many of you, if you're here for the first time, welcome. If not, I'm just going to give a tiny, teeny bit of a brief recap here. So as has been mentioned in previous studies, Paul was on his second missionary journey where he wrote this letter, Philippians, to the church in Philippi from a prison in Rome in and around A.D., 61 to 62. And the purpose of this letter was really to kind of just to send a, like a thank you letter, if you will. They had given, hooked up Paul with some cash and they wanted to, he wanted to say thank you. So that's in essence in a brief nutshell what that is. But the theme of Philippians can be said to be joy or even, um, general Christian living. So that's a little snapshot for you. We're going to read in chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter two. We're going to start in verse 12, and I'm going to be reading through the ESV version, and I will start. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul begins with an exhortation to obey. He calls the Philippians to obey just as. Um, to obey just as Christ obeyed the Father. And we saw this played out in our passage last week. So that they ought to continue in Christ's example of submission. Notice that the exhortation was direct but gentle. He refers to them as my beloved. Also, Paul calls for obedience with integrity. He charges them today, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul expresses the same directive to the Ephesian and Colossian churches when he writes about the relationship between slaves and masters. It says, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he has done, whether he is slave or free. And that's from Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3. From these verses, we draw a distinction, though, in the quality and obedience that Paul is advocating for. How we obey matters to the Lord. Do we obey outwardly, all the while defiantly standing up inwardly? I'm going to fix my mic really quick because my hair's is in my way. Let's see if that's a little bit better. Sorry for the feedback, ladies. Okay. So my son is an expert at this, by the way. Or do we obey partially? Like when I, I ask my kids to go throw something away or put it in the, in the trash um, or put something in like the wash, right? And it goes everywhere. Like it goes on the side. It goes on the bottom. It goes on the top. It goes anywhere but actually where it's supposed to go. Or how about when I ask them to clean their rooms and everything is just stuffed underneath the bed Or like in a drawer, right? And oh, the things a mom finds in her child's not-so-secret locations. But how about when I ask them to brush their teeth, right? Or put on deodorant. And they complete the task in like two seconds. And you know, mamas, that you are not getting your money's worth, right? Right? Okay, I did it. I'm done. Or how about... Oh, no. Catching up. So we see partial obedience displayed in the Bible, too. Remember when the Lord told Saul to completely destroy the Amalekite nation, including all the livestock in 1 Samuel 15. Yet Paul spared the king's life, and he preserved the best livestock. The consequences of partial obedience was fierce. The result was the rejection of Saul as king over Israel. For the Lord prized obedience to his voice over the sacrifice of animals. So we see that the quality of our obedience matters. Publicly or privately, we want to strive for integrity of heart and character. Okay, so turning back to our scripture, the second half of verse 12 reads, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now this verse can be a little bit tricky. We can be confused Or we can mistake it to mean that salvation comes by works, by me performing good deeds, right? And not by faith in Jesus. Let's examine the words a little more closely. Notice it says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. This is point number one on your study guide. Work out your salvation, not work for it. The individual salvation of the Philippian believer had already been granted and received. So how do I know this? Because of Philippians 1.1, where Paul addresses the reader, his audience, as saints in Christ. The phrase, work out, actually means to put into practice. Well, what, you may ask? The, their daily Christian living. It carries the idea of working it out to full completion, Kind of like when a a miner wants to mine out all that ore in a cave. Or like a farmer working his field to obtain the greatest harvest possible. Or my favorite illustration, like working out a math problem to its fullest extent possible. And since I homeschool, I thought that you gals might enjoy a teeny little bit of a visual demonstration of this concept. So I'm going to have my wonderful sound team um, play the first um, video. Let's see. Hi, ladies. Welcome to fourth grade homeschool, where we are going to illustrate the concept of working out our salvation by working out long division to its completion. So we have five divided by 3,670. So five can't go into three, no. But it can go into 36. And the closest we can get is seven times. So seven times five is 35. (laughs) Subtract that, we get one. Then we're gonna bring down our seven. Five can go into 17 three times. Three times five is 15. Good. Subtract that. We get two. Lastly, we bring down our zero and we go five can go into 20. How many times, ladies? Four times. Four times five is 20, leaving us with zero remainder. So that is an example of how we work out our salvation to its completion. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you. (laughs) A plus. A plus. Yay. Homeschool is relevant. All right. Okay. All right. So, so in what manner should we work out our salvation? Our text says with fear and trembling. Paul's exhortation makes sense here because he's addressing the disunity and the pride among the Philippians brought up earlier in verses two through five, which I'll read for you. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord And of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, that's awesome, in Christ Jesus. So the outworking of our salvation, ladies, isn't accomplished in pride, but with fear, in trembling with complete trust in God and not ourselves notice verse 13 for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure it begins with God he's the originator he's the initiator he works in us the word works actually means to energize to provide enablement so he energizes us on the inside To work out his will on the outside. That is point number two on your study guide. He energizes us on the inside to work out his will on the outside. But how do we respond to his leadings? Where does God's divine enablement meet with our human responsibility, our personal cooperation? Allow me to pull in an illustration from a devotional that I enjoy reading. Be patient with me. The title of it is results may vary. And the verse that goes with it says other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some 60, some 30 times. What was sown. It was an odd sight: two identical plants sitting side by side in the same flower bed at my cousin's house. They'd been watered by the same irrigation nourished by the same nutrients from the same exact soil. Yet one was green, lush, and vibrant, while the other was brown, dry, and brittle. Strange. And yet maybe not quite so uncommon. Not in our Christian life, at least. In Jesus's familiar parable of the sower, all of the seeds that were planted on good ground or in good soil resulted in a crop, a good crop. All of them were considered productive, but some were less productive than others. A 30-fold yield is naturally not as healthy as a 60-fold, nor is 60-fold as desirable as a 100-fold. Hundreds of believers can sit in the same church, sing the same songs, be fed from the same word, and share from the same spiritual table. Yet the fruit that is produced in one person's life from the implanted word of God can vary widely from what was produced in another. So we have the same soil, but a different harvest. That's because some believers are willing to do the hard work of appropriating and utilizing the spiritual nutrients (coughs) being offered to them, while others sit back in apathetic indolence. Without proactive and intentional action, they find themselves lacking the fruit they admire in others. The soil can be the same, and yet the harvest completely different. Each of us must individually do the work of tending to the seed that's been planted, renewing our minds, yielding to the spirit, devoting ourselves to prayer, and living with a God-centered perspective. Don't settle for less than all he wants to produce through your life. Tend your soil, take care of your seed, yield a fruitful harvest. Yes, God works and moves in our hearts. But we must be willing vessels ready to respond to his involvement. Are we willing? Are we responsive to his movements? Or can we, like verse 14 states, do all things without grumbling or disputing? So aside from that verse being the most quote verse I share with my 10-year-old son, it's true, it was kind of a gut check for me. Although I desperately wanted to sweep this verse under the rug this week while I was preparing for the message, my conscience, or better yet the Holy Spirit, would not let me put it down. He kept bringing it back over. I was like, i got a lot to go through, Lord. Maybe just not so much on this. But nope. back and forth, back and forth. So if God works and wills inside of me, why do I complain so much? What's really at the core of this grumbling spirit? And I wondered the same for you gals. So a few possibilities considered, it's not a wide variety, it's just a few ideas. Let's see if anything resonates. Have you been like overly tired, like consistently tired, completely stressed out, not just a little, but like a lot, experiencing pain, feeling overwhelmed? What about discontentment? Discontentment, like a sore thumb stuck out in a particular area or two of my life. I felt dissatisfied, discouraged, and completely annoyed. I see my willpower fly out the window in like two seconds. This is why I wanted to skip this verse. <laughs> but as I consider where the source of my sassiness comes from, I think I'm a lot like that withering, withering plant mentioned in that devotional. I know that God is willing but, and able, but am I? What about you? What is the Holy Spirit prompting in our hearts that we aren't willing to face, let alone surrender? Lord, we can't be fruitful apart from you. We can't yield a harvest on our own. It's not by might. We know the verse. It's not by power. But it's by my spirit, says the Lord. God's spirit plus a willing heart, a willing vessel equals transformation. This is why I love Bible studies so much, because it gives us the opportunity to really get in the nitty-gritty and figure out how this Christian life is really supposed to work. When God works out his sanctification process in our lives, he transforms us more into the image or the likeness of Christ, right? And in part, he does this so that he can attract others to himself. Let's pick up in verse 14. I'll read it again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights before the world. So before they could ever shine like the stars, before their testimony for Christ could ever be effective to unbelievers, the Philippians and us really need to do some housekeeping. The word blameless here, it doesn't mean sinless. Perfection. It means to be above reproach, to have character, especially among outsiders or unbelievers. Proverbs twenty-two once says that a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Mark Twain once said, "Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example." <laughs> The word innocent in our text means pure. And it carries this idea of undiluted wine or unweakened metal. It's literally the strong stuff. So may the Lord strengthen our frames for his glory, for our growth, and for the sake of the gospel. And we see this exemplified in verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. To hold fast in the Greek language here is literally a picture of someone offering wine to a guest at a banquet. What we hold out both to ourselves and to others matters. I feel the nudge of the Spirit prompting me to ask, to what or to whom are you holding fast? Search your heart. Is there an area in your life that's got you captivated in the wrong way? Is your attention wrapped up in a worldly TV show, a movie, a magazine? What about a book that's got you clinging to some type of fantasy life, offering false comfort? If so, please come out from that and be separate. The Lord your God has a deeper standard of purity for you. Allow him to consecrate that area of your life and meet that need for authentic love so that tomorrow he will do wondrous things among you and through you. What we hold firmly to, ladies, it makes all the difference as Christians because we are not, we are not the blind leading the blind here. No. We have the words of life. Amen? Amen. Where else would we go? Yesterday I was preparing the message and I was just listening to a song on repeat and I just, first song I heard and I just bought it and played it over and over because I loved the verse. I love one of the lyrics. It says, I don't want to miss one word you speak because everything you say to me is life. So quiet my heart. I'm listening. It reminds me of Habakkuk two one, which says I stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look, and I will look to see what he will say to me. Again, beloved, I ask you, what is the Holy Spirit holding out to your heart right now? What is he holding out? What is he speaking to you? Hold fast to him instead. Stand your ground, because glory is at stake. Glory is at stake. Ladies, we know the vine dresser. Wine was meant to be shared, to be poured out. So let's not run in vain. Let's, not, let, let's run and labor with purpose and purity. Let's look how this, um, this theme continues in verse 17. It says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What an antidote to our earlier discussion on a grumbling spirit, right? Paul's heart convicts and challenges me. What a picture of sacrificial love. His attitude is just like Christ's. He's a willing, sacrificial servant who even in death, just like Denise mentioned last week, chose for the joy sent before him to endure the cross. He's ministering to our needs. In fact, let's read the next portion of text to draw upon this theme of servanthood. Let's pick it up in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him, no, who will generally, who will be generally concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing For you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So, we now have the introduction of both Timothy and Epaphroditus. So, weaved through our passage is such a beautiful portrait of selfless service. Paul loved Timothy dearly, as is evidenced by the text. Yet, despite the fact that he is the one in prison, Paul hoped to send Timothy to the Philippians for their edification in the Lord. Even though he had no one like him, no one like Timothy, Paul intended to share his trusted son in the faith at the most inopportune time for him because he valued their spiritual nourishment and development above his own needs. And the same argument can be made for Epaphroditus. Paul thought it necessary to send him back to Philippi. I cannot imagine, I can't, the tremendous stress that Paul may have been under. But I find it remarkable how he elevated the needs of the flock over his personal well-being. So whether we consider Paul, whether we consider Timothy or Epaphroditus, we see that all left a testimony of mutual love for one another and for the spiritual health of the Philippian body. What examples we have. Admiration of such godly men inspires, but we must remember that it's the Lord who enables us to live, to move, and to have our being. Amen? If we take a step back, we might observe the ministry of hope being intertwined throughout the second half of Philippians chapter 2, as well as in our own lines. This is actually going to be point number three on your study guide, the ministry of hope. The ministry of hope. Okay. So on point number 3A, it says, we first we find the Christian woman is a recipient of hope. She is a recipient of hope. You see, she cannot work out her salvation with fear and trembling without there first being a conversion to faith in Christ. Yes? And point number 3B, we see second that the Christian woman is a beacon of hope. Her character made beautiful over the course of her life. It attracts and it beckons others to the hope that lies within her. Third, the Christian woman is an ambassador of hope. She is an ambassador. That's point uh, 3C, ambassador of hope. Not only does she receive and shine forth like a lighthouse, but she also holds out the word of life, pointing others to the way. And as beautiful as this realization may be, ladies, there can be no hope of salvation without mercy. This is point number four on your study guide. There is no hope of salvation without mercy first. What hope of salvation and escape from eternal death would we had if it first weren't for the merciful and sovereign plan of man's redemption at Christ's expense? I would argue none. Isaiah 63, 9 states, in God's love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Hope isn't cheap, right? It was predicated upon the blood of Christ. His sacrifice sustains his promise and our hope for life beyond the grave. So as we transition to close our time today, let's finish our passage with an emphasis on mercy. So speaking of Epaphroditus, verse 27 says, Indeed, he was ill, near to death, But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. How many times have I prayed that verse? I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Verse 27 has been a personal mantra for me. Although all my family and I got COVID, my husband was hospitalized back in August with double pneumonia. And it was said that he could go either way. And like Epaphroditus, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Mercy. Mercy. The Lord was indeed merciful. Many of you have witnessed similar situations, I am sure. You've rejoiced. You've basked in gratefulness to the Lord. And perhaps like me, Thanksgiving has never meant so much to you than it does now. Amen? While others of you have lost loved ones from COVID or maybe something else, I understand. Those are not just words for me. I unexpectedly lost a godly man who has been a father to me since I was the age of 12. And he he died from COVID in October. And I want to uh, introduce you to Papa, aka Victor Padilla. So I've got a, I'm going to show you a couple slides. Uh, so you can, you know, see a picture of him. So this is, um, so here's the connection. I met, they have four kids. That's Gloria, a.k.a. Mama. That's Papa, and that's me. And that's my high school graduation. I met their daughter in seventh grade, Michelle, and we have been best friends since. So that's high school graduation. And then I'll take the next picture. This is me at graduating from Cal State, San St. Marcos, Papa and Mama. And then the last picture, that is me pregnant with my firstborn. So you can see, and that sound ministry told me to tell you that I didn't spill stuff on my shirt. It, they want me to, to tell you that. Like, it's just the way I took my picture and it made a shadow. But I say all of that <laughs> to say that they have been with me. I mean, I mean, and when I say family, I was over there all the time, like every night, every day, like. I was grafted into their family. I'm considered a daughter. Um, and so they've been there with me for everything. So I also wanted to, so you could hear Papa, get a little taste of his personality. I have a voicemail that I have saved on my phone. It was the last voicemail I ever got from him. And it was from mother's day. And I thought you could maybe hear a little bit of his personality. So just listen. It's not, you can't see anything. Just listen to it. Hi, Murmur. Pop up calling you up to wish you a very, very happy Mother's Day. I want you to know that we love you. And thank you for being a part of our lives. And thank you for doing such a good job with those beautiful babies and yours. Love you. I hope you're having a blessed day. And tell Noah to cook for you. Bye. So you said, tell Noah, my husband, to cook for you. Um, that, they call me Murmur. That's my nickname, uh, Murmur. And so he he's awesome. He was this man, you saw him, he was a big Puerto Rican man, um, but he was just the kind heartedest man. He was so always silly, always laughing, burning up the house with salsa, dancing, standing right in front of the TV like this. You couldn't see anything. He was completely silly, and yet he was incredibly serious and passionate about the Lord. Um, He was an even stronger man of God. He was literally an oak of righteousness for the display of God's splendor. Love him, and I will see him. We feel his, his loss immensely. So I have seen the Lord give and the Lord take away. When I look at my husband and Papa, I mean, we're talking the span of a couple weeks between the two, um, situations. So, but prior to Papa's death, I actually suffered a broken foot and it's not a dramatic story at all, but it's kind of funny. So I was going to try to, you know, go to Starbucks and I was going by myself, which was a treat. And, um, my house has this porch and you walk down it and then there's a sidewalk and there's two steps, sidewalk and whatever. So I was, you know, walking down and I had just kind of paused so that I could watch this car do a U-turn in our cul-de-sac, you know, whatever. So as I was watching it, I just went and I rolled my ankle and fell. Super not glorious, right? I told you, but that's What happened? And so I got two sets of x-rays and no breaks. Okay, good to go. But like six months later, I'm still walking funny. You can watch when I walked on. I'm still walking funny. I have physical therapy now. But um, I finally went in and got the MRI. And they said, oh, no, no, you broke it. I was like, oh, great. And they're like, you need surgery. And it was like, wham, bam, like real quick. So, in fact, it was so quick that the surgery occurred two days after Papa's memorial. And... um, It was emotional. I was blessed to be able to speak among um, Gloria's children. And it was a lot, a lot going on. Um, But I remember coming home. And I remember, I will leave out the funny stories about anesthesia because I'm pressed for time, but they're funny. Anyway, I remember being alone in my room. And I remember, like, it was overcast. And it was really quiet, and I was by myself, and you'd think I'd be excited to have this break from everything, but but now I had this broken heart to match my broken foot, right? And I remember the image that the Lord kind of painted in my mind. I was like this little lamb, like literally and emotionally just broken to pieces. And he picked me up, and he bound me around his neck, And there I would remain while the good shepherd would tend to my wounds, carrying me one day at a time, gently leading me along those green pastures and those still waters, slowly and steadily healing what has been dubbed my double brokenness. Ladies, he's still merciful. He is. He's still faithful. Psalm 57.1 says, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. For in you my soul takes refuge. And I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Amen? When your understanding of the circumstances of life may fail, what you do then is that you put your trust in the good shepherd to have him take over. When your questions are there, God's faithfulness will outstretch them all. John thirteen seven says, you do not now realize what I am doing, but later, ladies, later we will understand. He's got you. He's got each one of us. Just like he had Paul, just like he had Timothy, just like he had Epaphroditus, he's got us. And I want you, I'm just about to close, but give me your attention for one second. The very next words that Paul speaks is chapter 3, verse 1, Right? And this is what he says, finally, my brothers rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, after it's all been said and done, finally, after every trial, every sorrow and every tear has been shed, finally, we'll see him face to face and we will rejoice. Make no mistake. We will rejoice. Amen. Amen. Joy cometh, friend. His mercies are new every day. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would take your word. God, just as we prayed at the beginning, Lord, would you just administer it? Would you scatter it deep within their hearts? Would you water it? Would you grow it? Would you tend it in the hours to come, late at night when they sleep? In the days to follow, Lord, would you bring your Holy Spirit to just bear witness with what it is that you're speaking? Lord, if there's areas that need to be let go of, Father, I pray, give them faith. Give them a willing heart and remind them that they can do all things through Christ who gives them strength. What things? All things, because your spirit has promised divine enablement to meet us. Lord, we give you our hearts. Would you just bless it? Would you just do the thing in our life, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.